0: Yeah. Why you to do me like Yeah yeah yeah. I live in London, I'm London-based, I'm a long-term anti-racist campaigner, um, a sometime writer, and for my day job I'm a criminal barrister. As the
1: Black Lives Matter protests erupt around the world. I sat down with Brian Richardson, a criminal barrister and anti-racist activist. Now a leading figure in Stand Up To Racism, he has worked for the Anti-Nazi League and has been involved in the campaign for justice for the Grenfell community. As a barrister, Brian has only ever done defence, standing up for some of the poorest and most marginalised individuals in society. He is with Nexus Chambers, led by Michael Mansfield, a titan of social justice campaigns in the UK. Brian has authored books, including Say It Loud, Marxism and the Fight Against Racism, Tell It Like It Is, How Our Schools Fail Black Children, and Bob Marley: Roots, Reggae and Revolution. Brian also happens to be my partner, and there has never been a better time to interview him. The death of George Floyd has not just prompted global protests, it has also sparked conversations about racism in workplaces, on social media and closer to home. We sat down to discuss exactly what racism is and where it comes from, how Brian sees racism play out in the criminal justice system, and why the current debate around statues reflects our future as well as our past. And, as with every episode of Future Heist, there are resources and action points for activists. This is Future Heist conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve Smith. I want to talk about the Black Lives Matter protests that have been happening around the world. They've obviously been massive in many countries. Why is this happening now?
0: Well, I think obviously the immediate catalyst has been the killing of George Floyd, the 46-year-old man by a police officer in Minnesota on the 25th of May. I mean, that incident was, was so brutal that I think it created an understandable wave of anger. If you think about it, there's something truly... Incredibly harrowing about watching a 46-year-old man crying for his mum and gasping, I can't breathe, whilst the life is literally crushed out of him for, it was to be precise, eight minutes and 46 seconds. And of course, it isn't the first time that we've seen or heard on film a man crying out those exact words, I can't breathe, as he's wrestled to the ground and throttled to death. You may recall that exactly the same thing happened back in 2014 when Eric Garner in New York City, who, you know, the supposed crime he was committing was was selling loose cigarettes. He was wrestled to the ground. He was gasping, I can't breathe. And he died at the hands of the police. Um, in fact, there's, there's a very... Brilliant piece of music by Terence Blanchard, who's the composer who is Grammy award-winning winning composer who usually writes the score for Spike Lee films. That was written in 2015 that commemorates that particular incident. So um, I think that's the immediate catalyst, but in a sense, it's a it's a lightning rod for a wider fury and anger particularly I think about police brutality because you know probably that phrase I can't breathe will have been said dozens perhaps hundreds of times because these incidents do happen all the time over 1100 people die at the hands of the police a disproportionate number of whom are black men and boys every single year
1: so as you say these problems have existed Mm -hmm. for a long time incidents like what happened to george floyd it's not the first time it's happened and it's created an outpouring of anger and sympathy and there's been some people have described it as a as an awakening Mm -hmm. why is it now do you think that it's having this worldwide reaction yeah
0: well i mean certainly in you know, again, in the States, there's been a build-up towards this. There's been, you know, there have been other very recent, very horrific deaths. I'm Thinking, for example, of, in this case, a woman, Breonna Taylor, who is 26 years old, who died at the hands of the police in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so I think it's it's been the catalyst for a revival, of course, of the Black Lives Matter movement that first emerged back in uh, the mid-2010s. But I think alongside the specific issue of police brutality, you have the pandemic, the COVID-19 catastrophe, really, which is having a hugely disproportionate impact upon black, Asian and minority ethnic communities, both in terms of people dying and becoming more and more impoverished as the lockdowns are imposed. And instead of support and sympathy and help for people to to survive and to get out of it people are being once again pathologized and black communities are being blamed for the problems themselves told that it's because of underlying health conditions because they don't socially distance because they flout the regulations that are being imposed and i think therefore partly what we're also seeing is a rage and a fury against that endemic structural racism that exists, not just in America, but across the world.
1: So it sounds like between COVID-19 and racism more generally, there's a link here, which is poverty. Poverty is causing huge deaths among the working class, and particularly among black and minority ethnic people. And it's also a, a catalyst for for racial issues as well. Would you say that's true?
0: Absolutely. I think I, I think I think that is absolutely the case. I think that that is. I, I think fundamentally, it's the reason why people have. Erupted onto the streets, as you say, not just in America but elsewhere. I think that the, you know, here in Britain, there's been a whole series of protests, and people have been expressing rightly their solidarity with George Floyd and all of the people in the States. But people have also said, remember the people who have died in police custody in this country, over 3,000 since 1969, but people are also reacting with anger and and fury about the impact that COVID-19 is having. You rightly say, Rena, disproportionately upon people from Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities, but not exclusively. The majority of people who are becoming seriously ill and dying in this country are white working class people. And I think what we're seeing is people saying that we are not going back to business as usual when this is over.
1: Donald Trump has called on governors in America to come down very strongly on protesters, but also looters, who he's um, lumping together in the same category. Some states have used a very brutal crackdown. Why do you think Trump's re- response has been so violent to these protests?
0: Well, you're right, Rena. You know, he, Trump, he, you know, there was, there were, there was inevitably tweets there was a leaked phone conversation and then there was a press state, a press conference where he said that governors have to start dominating, I think was the phrase that he used. Otherwise, they would look, be run over and made to look like jerks. I think, and extraordinary though this may sound to people in Britain, that before the pandemic... Trump thought that he was guaranteed to win the next uh, presidential election. I think especially when it became clear that his opponent was going to be Joe Biden. But then came the pandemic and his leadership. You know, he's been exposed to someone who's completely out of his depth, you know, incapable of leading America properly out of the crisis. You know, he, he's, his management would be considered laughable if it wasn't the fact that it's cost over 100,000 American lives and I think that what you've seen therefore is I mean it sounds a slightly flippant phrase essentially a triple whammy you've seen the fury about racism erupting onto the streets you've seen the wider health crisis of COVID-19 and you've seen what will almost certainly be an economic catastrophe and depression, and suddenly Trump's re-election hopes look far worse than they did. And in those circumstances, he's chosen to react in the only way he ever has done, the only way he knows, which is to ramp up racism, sow division, and he hopes cement his political base that way by scapegoating black people the political left and so on that's why he talks specifically about professional anarchists antifa and so on because he hopes that good old working class white people as he sees them will rally around him rally around the flag and rally around his law and order agenda
1: is that why there's been a focus, do you think, on property? I know that a lot of the criticism levelled at the protests, especially from, say, white communities who are possibly not familiar with or touched by problems of racism on a personal level. to so if you can make that generalisation. There's been concern around um, the looters and the damage to public property. We've seen that in the UK as well with the, with the damage to, to public statues. Do you think that that focus on public property rather than the violence that's happened against people from the police, do you think that's in order to sow
0: division between people? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And it's worth remembering rena that the i mean the current wave of protests is being compared to those that erupted in 1968 in the aftermath of the assassination of dr martin luther king and it's worth remembering as well that at that time there were huge uprisings around uh the vietnam war um massive protests on the street around that as well as of course the the birth of things like the Um, gay rights movement fights for women's liberation and so on and it's worth remembering that the, the incumbent president then was a democrat lyndon baines johnson his opponent richard nixon adopted and adapted what became known as the southern strategy which was specifically aimed at grabbing what had previously been democratic voters and winning them over for the republicans and so and this is you know, the similarity with this whole thing about you know, protecting property and the American way of life. He specifically, Nixon, attacked hippies who were supposedly privileged layabouts, smoking dope, hanging out at festivals, enjoying free love and so on. And who he was really looking at was the political left and um, attacking them while supposedly good old white working class boys, GIs, were dying in their thousands, sacrificing themselves for the freedoms that these other people were enjoying. Um, And so that was the strategy that Nixon adopted and it succeeded for him. He won the sixty-eight presidential election Trump is gambling that a similar approach will work for him. And that's why, you know, there is this specific naming and labelling of professional anarchists and Antifa. You know, that he he's pointing at the people who are organised, who are demonstrating white people showing solidarity with their black sisters and brothers, pointing those people out as being completely anathema to the American way of life. Um, You know, I I think that that is what we're seeing here. It's worth noting though, that that is a huge gamble. Deploying troops in a domestic setting basically means that you are getting black and white, working class young men usually, to train their guns on their own sisters and brothers that's an incredibly incendiary situation.
1: Is there a chance that that won't work? Is there a chance that this strategy of extreme violence, which has attracted so much criticism around the world, that it won't work for Trump and he risks his his next election?
0: Absolutely, and I think in two ways, firstly, there is a very real possibility that it will spark further huge upsurges on the streets, huge mass demonstrations, protests with everything that can be associated with that. That's one thing. And secondly, even in electoral terms, it's not guaranteed to succeed. It's worth remembering that the last time the 1807 Insurrection Act was used was in 1992. It was used by George Bush Sr., the then president, to try and put down the 1992 Los Angeles riots, which erupted in the aftermath, and this sounds like a familiar story, doesn't it, of the, uh, the, those riots erupted when the police officers responsible for the brutal racist beating of Rodney King the year before in 1991, they were acquitted. That's when the LA riots erupted. Bush invoked the 1807 Insurrection Act then, it didn't succeed for him. He was a one-term president. He lost that November's election to Bill Clinton.
1: There's been images of police taking a knee with protesters. Now, many have criticized this as a publicity stunt, and you could see why the police might make such a cynical move. However, is there a chance that police officers might feel the stirrings of solidarity as they take the knee with protesters about this issue i think undoubtedly
0: the uh, the killing of george floyd was was so brutal that You know, inevitably some police officers will think that's disgusting, I don't want to be associated with that. And of course, and I know this from my own professional experience here, if you like, that there are people who join the police thinking that they're serving their community, that they're doing good, that they really are there to protect old people, to protect um, the vulnerable, as well as, of course, protecting property. Um, And so, of course, on an individual level, some people will react like that. And, of course, it's interesting, and I think this is one of the, the very interesting things about America, is that you look everywhere and it seems as if almost every police chief is a black man. The police chief in Minneapolis is a black man. That is a measure in some ways of how... The, the, the strategy of the civil rights movement to break open some electoral spaces for black people to move into positions of power and responsibility had some significant success. But what it highlights, and I think this is really the fundamental point, coming back to your question, is that simply having a few people in, the top, in top positions, black faces in high places, if you like, doesn't solve the problem, because the problem with the police is not simply the attitude of individuals like Derek Chauvin. It's about the role that they play in society. Their role is to uphold law and order and to protect property. Whose law and order is it? Whose property are they protecting? It's that which serves the interests of the rich and powerful, not the poor, the marginalized and excluded. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You're right, these these murders have been totally shocking. And in fact, the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, the murder of so many black people at the hands of the police has been linked or has been described as the modern day equivalent of lynching. And You have to ask when you read these stories how the police think that they can get away with it when we live in a supposedly civilized society which leads me to ask what in your view is racism where does racism come
0: from well i think that's a there's a couple of great points and a couple of great questions there reen i mean firstly you know it, it, it raises the question are we actually living in a civilized society and I think it, it it takes us back, that takes us back to the question about what is racism, because we can all recognise a racist thug who hurls out abuse at people or who acts individually in a horrific and violent way, often, you know, perhaps even a murderous way towards people from black asian minority ethnic communities and obviously those experiences of racism for those people who are the victims of of it is especially horrific and harrowing but it's not the most common and it's easy to identify but that isn't the most common experience of racism that those of us from you know black, Asian, minority ethnic communities experience, you know in some ways what happened to George Floyd highlights in its most graphic form the systematic and structural nature of racism you know, that he, for the supposed crime of passing off a counterfeit $20 note gets brutalised in that way choked to his death and I think what It highlights, therefore, is that what racism is really all about is a self-perpetuating vicious cycle of oppression that starts, you know, and it's from cradle to grave. It starts right at the beginning, you know, where people are born, the communities that they live in, the education that they receive and the, the discrimination that people face in the education system, the disproportionate. Criminalisation of people from black communities. Uh, You know, a third of young men in America uh, are somehow caught up in the criminal justice system, either in prison, on parole, awaiting sentencing, and so on. Extraordinary figures. Uh, the, The worst levels of employment, the lack of promotion, and so on. That is the the structural, systematic, institutional racism that is, is really at the heart of the system. And it, uh, that highlights a couple of things. First, you know, why does it exist? It exists because it serves the needs and the interests of the rich and powerful. And because there is that level of inequality and marginalisation and exclusion, it does beg the question of whether we really are living in a civilized society or not i would argue that we're not
1: yeah it seems to me there's two ways of looking at it isn't there because there's the question of resources and people are looking at our history very closely especially because um just recently Statues have been defaced, statues of people who've been previously lauded and there's been statues around the world defaced, people who had racist connections, connections with slavery, racist views, etc., such as Winston Churchill. And so historically, if we look at who is rich and powerful, there's a history of shoring up of resources. I think about this when I walk around the really beautiful grand streets of West London and you see all those resources that were that were taken to make britain a rich country it was literally a system of looting imperialism is a system of looting where people went around the world and stole not just resources and not just uh, materials like gold like diamonds like cotton but also people were were stolen as well and and the system of slavery was literally you know an empire was created on the backs of people who were horrifically stolen from their land Um, and treated in, in just extraordinarily abusive ways. And so you can see racism in terms of white people's place in the world as being in positions of power, shall we say. But then there's another way of looking at racism, isn't there, where ongoing people are divided by racism and people are, as you say, held in place. I mean, I was learning recently about the way that slaveholders in the British Empire used to divide slave groups by the colour of their skin, literally between light and dark, and then give them different privileges. And this system of divided rule, and you can see it, I mean, you can see it happen in other colonies as well. In Ireland, there was divisions between Catholics and Protestants, and it was a way to, as I understand it, divide populations and make sure that those people wouldn't have solidarity between themselves and rise up against their oppressor. Would you say that's... Would you say that's a fair understanding?
0: You're right, Reena. And what, what you've just highlighted there, really, is the, the changing nature of racism. Racism had its origins in slavery. Um, slavery was the, the means by which capitalism really emerged as the, the new and dominant um, economic system. And it was built upon slavery. It's not that you know prejudice towards outsiders and so on it's not to say that it didn't exist before it's not to say that pre-capitalist societies were wonderful equal egalitarian societies of course they weren't but racism as a specific form of oppression did not exist it developed with a, a capitalism and it developed precisely because slavery, uh, the use of slaves, was the means by which the uh, you know early pioneers of capitalism gained their and developed and cemented their wealth. And you're absolutely right that in so doing, they stole absolutely everything from slaves. You know, even their identity. My surname is Richardson. Where does that come from? Um, And it's also absolutely the case that in order, you know, that to cement their power, they necessarily had to divide people because it wasn't automatically the case that people would, you know, oppose each other, would act in a kind of dog-eat-dog, look-after-number-one way. Often there were acts of solidarity and rebellion. And, of course, one of the... One of of the, the... the greatest books I have ever read is C. N. R. James's *The Black Jacobins*, which uh, talks about the slave revolt in San Domingo, what became Haiti, the successful slave revolt. And he wrote that precisely because he said the hidden history of people who fought back is you know it's unwritten and he wanted to write that so um it you know the the slavers had to use all those kind of means to divide people you're absolutely right and of course but of course slavery doesn't exist in the same way that it did at that time. People talk about modern slavery, and it is a horrible and far too widespread phenomenon. But slavery doesn't exist on anything like the scale that it did three or four hundred years ago. But clearly, as we're discussing, racism absolutely does, because it continues to serve the needs and interests of the rich and powerful they know that there is a potential for solidarity and unity by people from black and white communities. We see that brilliantly in in the demonstrations that are taking place. They need to break that solidarity because they need to continue to reinforce their power, wealth and privilege. And racism is one of the key means that they use to do that.
1: Those stories of of slave rebellions are very powerful and and I think it's interesting how we don't learn, you know, in Britain we don't tend to learn about the slave uprisings. We learn about the slave trade in economic terms, we learn about how people were traded for other things, we learn about the, um, oh yes, and also it was very bad and and there was a lot of suffering, but it's interesting how we don't learn about those uprisings. And I would say as well that that explanation that you've just given, I feel really also explains other aspects, historical aspects of racism, such as eugenics, this idea that white people are a master race and that the reason why they have exerted dominance over other races is because of an intrinsic superiority in terms of their genetics. Um, And that's an argument that has raised its ugly head again recently with the coronavirus. People have been dying... In black and asian and minority ethnic communities more because of uh, genetic deficiencies what do you think about that argument
0: well i think you're absolutely right that there has been a revival of these kind of scientific racist ideas in fact even before the coronavirus crisis we saw that kind of thing happening you may recall that there was a very controversial conference on intelligence that was being hosted by University College London a few years ago. One of the people attending that was Toby Young, who has been a senior government advisor on education. When the news came out that that conference was taking place, there was a huge uproar, and I think it may even have been cancelled. But I've also very recently read two books in particular that struck me there was Angela Saini's book called Superior The Return of Race Science and one by Adam Rutherford a geneticist called How to Argue with a Racist and the very reason why they produced those books was precisely because they could see that there were people who were trying to revive these kind of ideas of course they're not so crude as to say that, that that white people are superior, but they argue that there are clearly differences and differences which, you know, behind their their hand, they're indicating show, show the superiority of white people and ultimately why people shouldn't mix, why there should be this hierarchy.
1: And those are ideas that really were founding principles of the British Empire and that it's those kind of arguments that it's been exposed that Winston Churchill held about the, the superiority of, of white people. A lot of people are engaging with ideas around racism and anti-racism for the first time because of the death of George Floyd and the outrage that it's caused. And I've seen a lot of discussions around the idea of white privilege That's to say, the idea that as a white person, I have a privileged position in the world, and this comes with a blindness to the experience of racism. So in order to rid the world of racism, we as white people must make ourselves aware of our privilege and make room for people who are not white. And I can certainly see how there's some elements of truth in this. Certainly I haven't experienced the kind of racism that you, your family, other black people would have experienced. What do you think about the arguments around white privilege and are there limitations to it?
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right again that there has been a a widespread discussion about it in the the aftermath of the, the uprisings. And I think actually that the starting point is a positive one because it's one that stems from a determination to identify, to call out and to challenge racism. And if you think about it, there's there's a. There's a common sense notion to it because, as you say, as a white person, you don't experience racism. And so, therefore, I think it's, it's a natural reaction to think, oh, well, if I don't experience racism, somehow I must be a beneficiary and, therefore, I must do something to shake off the privilege that I have as someone who doesn't suffer racism. And I think that it has led to some very positive and practical things that people have done. So on the protests, for example, I've seen some white people both saying and actually doing this in practice, well, I'm less likely to get grabbed, attacked and brutalised by the police, so I should put myself on the front line, I should stand ahead of the, the black, Asian, minority, ethnic people who are more at risk than me. That is an understandable and a, and a sympathetic notion and and the practical effect of it has been to bring people out onto the streets together that's fantastic so you know I think the starting point of it is a good one but I think if you think about it more deeply it's a great place to start but I don't think it's a great place to finish because and in in a way it goes back to the early discussion that we had and I'm perhaps I'm caricaturing it and putting it slightly too crudely but i think that it ultimately focuses narrowly on the notion that it's individuals are the problem and that individuals have to change their attitudes and behavior and of course it's right that people do need to think about and if necessary change their attitudes and behavior it's important in that sense but it doesn't get to the heart of the, of the matter, which, as I've suggested, is that racism doesn't stem from individuals, but from those at the top of society, those who exercise power, control and influence over everybody else. And I think that, in turn, exposes a wider problem, which is that, ultimately, I think what you end up with, with the white privilege Argument is the notion that white people have to give up something that they supposedly benefit from, that black people don't have. And and of course, yes, it's true that if you're white, you're less likely to be excluded from school, more likely to go to the more prestigious universities, more likely to get that job, more likely to get a promotion. Um, less likely to be criminalised, but in a, that's hardly a privilege. That's in some ways, it's just the way that society, you know, society functions that things are distributed. But I think if you look at on a more specific level, you can see how that argument falls down. Let's consider the current pandemic, COVID nineteen, and yes, of course we know that hugely disproportionate numbers of people from black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities, not just in Britain, in America as well, are becoming critically ill and dying. Astonishing figures, over 100, the first 100 doctors, I think, were black or Asian. That's an incredible figure. But even with that massive disproportionality, here in Britain, the overwhelming majority of people, don't know what the percentage is, 70, 75, 80 percent, the majority who will be becoming critically ill and dying will be white. That's not a privilege. It's not a privilege for them to be suffering as well. And so I think a a too narrow focus, not that it can't play some role in bringing people to a realisation of, the role that they need to play in the fight against racism, but too narrow a focus on the idea of white privilege, I think ultimately hamstrings the struggle because it doesn't, it, it doesn't challenge and doesn't attack the people who really benefit the people at the top. You know, they would love to see you know, white people further down the chain giving up some of their money some of their access to health care because it means that they, those people who really benefit, don't have to give up their power and wealth.
1: I think that's a really powerful argument that as, as well as considering how we can, how the role that we play in society, having a macro view rather than a micro view of the social system and seeing the way that the haves benefit massively from the have-nots as a whole whatever background they come from and that idea that they would rather that people further down the chain give up privilege i mean i've seen a lot of companies make donations to um, black life matter charities causes funds etc but i've seen other companies asking their followers and asking uh, other people to make donations and i think that that's slightly a limited response because you're asking ordinary people to to put their hand in their pocket
0: i've been on all to date there's been three huge demonstrations in london and a whole series you know, right around the country of, of smaller more socially distanced demonstrations and i have been hugely inspired and encouraged by the breadth and diversity of, and the solidarity on display on those demonstrations. And that, for me, is the most important thing. And, you know, if the, the question about white privilege is part of the debate and the discussion that people are having on those demonstrations and in the platforms that have been uh, sparked by those protests. And I think uh, it, it's a good thing. Ultimately, I think we want to develop it into... You know, not just a moment, but a movement and a movement that involves everybody who wants to be involved.
1: I agree that this is not an issue that um, where white people are shut out from. I think that it, there's parallels here with the women's liberation movement in that a lot of the time, even among the left, women feminist issues are seen as something which women... You know there's you go to these meetings they're overwhelmingly women and they're discussing and you have all kinds of um, very complex and very interesting and nuanced arguments around what can be done but what's really missing from that room is the men and i often think that in order for equality to to be achieved there is a role that of course men can play and you look at the statistics around not just domestic violence but things like housework and things like that yeah I definitely agree that it that it's been really inspiring to see the variety and the diversity of people supporting this movement
0: yeah and just I mean if I can just comment on that actually Rina because um you know like some of the first things I got involved in and that made me politically conscious were obviously anti-racist struggles. But I remember as well, when I was at university, there was a huge campaign around, I think it was called the Alton Bill. Um, a liberal MP introduced a bill to to restrict abortion rights. And there was big debates on the campus I was on about, you know the, you know, whether men could be involved and so on. And of course, it's an issue for all working class people, I think of course you know with women who have babies and so women should have the right to determine what they do with their own bodies but you know, women you know live in families with partners of all different sexualities and, and genders and so on and it is an issue for all of us
1: absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to ask then, thinking about the systematic nature of racism and the institutional nature of racism, you're a criminal barrister. Have you seen evidence of institutional racism in the criminal justice system?
0: Well, absolutely. And in fact, I think it's an issue not just for the criminal justice system, it's an issue for the the justice system as a whole. And it's also an issue for the legal profession as a whole. And let me just give give you a couple of examples. Certainly within the criminal justice system, there is overwhelming evidence that black, Asian, minority ethnic people are discriminated against. A couple of years ago, I think it was 2017, David Lammy, who at that time was... He had been a minister in the previous Labour administration, but was now a backbench MP. And he was actually asked by David Cameron, because he's an MP in Tottenham, he's a black MP, he was asked to do a study into the criminal justice system. And his report, it's called the Lamy Report, identified overwhelming discrimination. So, for example, you're much more likely to be charged. You're much more with what's called indictable, the more serious offences. You're, um, interestingly actually, I think the study showed that you are less likely to be convicted of those indictable offences. And I think what that highlighted was the fact that the people who had been arrested and charged had been wrongly arrested and charged in the first place, which is a, a measure of the discrimination that happens even before people get to court. But if you are convicted, you're much more likely to be sent to prison and sent to prison for longer. That's a measure of how things operate in the criminal justice system. And Lammy's report didn't even focus on stops and searches, he wasn't asked to consider the question of stops and searches, but that has historically been one of the biggest bones of contentions that people in black, Asian and minority ethnic communities have had about the way we're treated. In fact, it was Sir William McPherson himself admitted that when he wrote the 1999 Stephen Lawrence Inquiry report, the primary reason why he was forced to acknowledge the existence of institutional racism was because of the contributions that people had made constantly at that inquiry about particularly stops and searches and the huge disproportionality that there is. Just on the question of the legal profession and and that discrimination I think happens in all areas the family courts and so on I'm not an expert in those, but when I speak to colleagues about it, they say exactly the same thing. The legal profession as a whole, I think it's, it's quite interesting because if you look at criminal law firms, so solicitors, or indeed you look at the criminal bar, you see quite a lot of people who are from black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds. And that, I think, is in a way, it's a consequence of struggles that we fought in the past for representation, for access to universities and so on. However, the further up the chain you look at the people who are senior barristers, Queen's Council, you look at the benches and look who the judges are, the senior judges, um, or indeed, if you look at other areas of law, the more Prestigious areas, the more profitable, well paying areas, and you see it's much more white, and of course, it's much more male as well.
1: Have you seen evidence of your clients suffering from discrimination as a result of, well, first of all, the, that discrimination that David Lammy did a report on, or from the, the lack of representation? Of black people in the in the legal profession.
0: Well, both. It goes back really, really. I mean, one of the reasons I was inspired is the wrong term, persuaded to become a barrister, is because of the work that I did around school exclusions. And I remember in particular a a quote that has always stayed with me, uh, Sir Martin Nairi, who had been the Director General of the Prison Service. And latterly, he was the chief executive of Bernardo, so had a kind of handle on the question of young people and prisons. And he said the 13,000 young people permanently excluded from school each year may as well be given a date sometime down the line to join the prison service. I think he said that back in 2001. That is absolutely still the case today, that there is a very, very direct Exclusions to prison pipeline, and they're you know the kids who are excluded from school, and therefore because they're exclude, excluded from school, they're going to be out on the streets. That inevitably means they're going to come under the watchful eye of the police because they're not in school. They also, of course, come under the watchful eye of those people who do want to try and exploit them, recruit them into gangs who are selling drugs and stuff like that. Now, of course, we have to be careful because it doesn't happen to every single child that is excluded. And in a way, I would pay tribute to parents, families, teachers and so on who do an incredible job to look after and nurture our children. But it does happen all too often. And so many of those young, so it's because of the discrimination that they experience right through their lives that they end up getting trapped in the criminal justice system. I cannot remember, and I've practiced for over a decade now, I can't remember the last time a client of mine, and living and working in London, a hugely disproportionate number of my clients are young black men. I can't remember the last time I represented someone who hadn't either been excluded from school or who had, didn't have learning difficulties or, in many cases, both. And I remember talking quite recently, and indeed he wrote an article about this, one of my mentors when I was doing my original training as a barrister, a guy called Michael Turner, QC, who's got over 35 years' experience. And he does regularly long murder trials for example in the Old Bailey often involving people involved in gangs and so on he told me and he wrote in this article he can't remember the last time that he represented someone who hadn't been excluded from school that really is a measure of just how deeply rooted it is I think
1: yeah And do you think there are also signs of poverty as well? I mean, we were talking just earlier about the return of race science and the right-wing arguments for the reasons why black people don't achieve as much. But what's the real reason?
0: Well, there's. I was listening to Gary Young recently. Gary Young, the the former brilliant Guardian journalist, is now... Professor of Sociology at Manchester University. And I think Gary put it extremely well. He said that it, of course there is there is an interrelationship between race and class. You know, the reason why black people are disproportionately um, poor is because they're working, you know, they're working class. And it's um, you know, that, that's why they're on the front line as transport workers, cleaners and so on, that's why they're catching COVID-19. It's because they're poor and therefore having to go to work or they live in the poor, impoverished areas of our towns and cities. But there are huge numbers of working class white people who are in that situation as well and therefore people describe it as an ethnic penalty you can't simply just kind of strip away all of these things and say oh it's just about class you know even if you are you know you're working class and you're black you're predicament is likely to be worse than that of an equivalent white person if you like so there is what we call an ethnic penalty but that doesn't mean to say to go back to our earlier discussion that the white people living in poverty having to go to work and catching COVID-19 unable to socially distance because they don't have nice gardens and nice houses they don't benefit from that and that's why I think it is so important to talk about class unity and black and white working class people coming together to challenge the power and authority of the people who really do benefit.
1: And I suppose you can see that in the legal profession as well, that there are plenty of working class people who suffer you know, as a result of poverty and as a result of being working class, and they also don't benefit from the criminal justice system as it is. But as you say, there's this ethnic penalty, there's an extra um, level of oppression meted against against people
0: who are not white. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, in some ways, you know, my practice will, as I say, the overwhelming majority of my clients are young black men that in some ways is reflective of where I live and where I work. If I were to go to Hertfordshire or Windsor where I was born, the majority of people going through the system there are probably young, white working class men.
1: I know you've seen the film Thirteenth, the documentary film. I wonder what you think about the very powerful argument in that, that equates the criminal justice system and the, the prison industrial complex, as it's, as it's called, in America, the system of, of prisons and how they operate, and seeing it as a continuation of slavery, that people cannot be forced to work unless, according to the 13th amendment, they are, they're a criminal. What do you think about that idea that historically we can see the way that black people are treated by the criminal justice system, as a continuation of historic attitudes towards black people?
0: That's a great question. And that is, as you say, Rena, that is an absolutely brilliant film, which if people haven't seen it, Ava DuVernay's film 13th, I would strongly recommend It's on Netflix. And recently, following on from that, she's made a, a brilliant... Uh, it's a dramatisation of the a, a story of a, a group of young youths actually who were wrongly convicted of a horrible rape that took place in Central Park and she's told their story. I think it's, I think you're right to say that it's part of a continuing story. It's a changing story of course because as we've discussed slavery in the way in which it existed when America first became a huge economic power doesn't exist in the same way but there is, there has been that continuation of a belief by those in power and authority that black lives are cheap, that they're expendable and they can be used, abused and disposed of. And that's exactly what you see with 13th, with huge numbers of, again, primarily black men being incarcerated and it being felt, well... Why don't we make some use of these people? Let's exploit them. And that's exactly what you see happening. And it is an absolute disgrace.
1: How did you first get involved with activism, Brian? Was it racism as an issue which brought you into, into being active?
0: It was really. In terms of being active, the... The mid-1980s was a a pretty tumultuous time in in British history. So you may be aware, for example, that in the the mid-1980s from 84-85, there was a a year-long miners' strike which created um, massive divisions in society and we had the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher calling the miners the enemy within. And that was literally on our TV screens and in our newspapers all of the time. I was an A-level student at the time and so I was, I was bound to look at those things and begin to question what society was like but it didn't make me active. I lived in Windsor, I wasn't living in the mining areas, I wasn't really coming into contact with people who were actively political so the most that I would do was watch it, shout at the TV and that kind of thing. Then I went up to Manchester in 1986 and Manchester for quite a period of time had been regarded as one of the more active university campuses in terms of student politics. Now, that wasn't the reason I went there at all, but I couldn't help but be influenced by that, um, seeing people involved in activity. And so then, specifically, there was an incident in 1988 where two horrific murders, of sex workers had occurred in Whitworth Park which is right near to the main university campus and right near to where I lived and I remember originally the police responded to that by appealing to people in Moss Side which is the predominantly black part of Manchester very close to the city centre The police, and therefore very close to the park where the murders had taken place, the police initially responded by putting out appeals to the community to come forward and help them to solve the crimes. But then, within a very short space of time, that had turned to smashing down people's doors, dragging people out in the middle of the night, and what people regarded as being overly aggressive and oppressive policing. And so I remember that a demonstration was called in the, the very same Whitworth Park, I think it was. or it may have m- assembled in Moss Side, but was marching to Whitworth Park. And so I went along to that demonstration and it was very interesting. And I suppose you can say that from there, in terms of me, the rest is history.
1: <laughs> you also worked for the Anti-Nazi League in the 1990s. Can you tell me about that?
0: Yeah. That was, again, that was a very tumultuous time. The Anti-Nazi League, as you, you, you'll you know, originally existed in the, was established in the 1970s and ran through until the early 1980s. And at that time, the Anti-Nazi League and its kind of sister organisation, the, the cultural movement, Rock Against Racism, were challenging the rise of the National Front, a very serious rise. They were beating the Liberal Party into fourth place in local and national elections. They seriously thought that they were going to make a major breakthrough on the national political stage. And they were beaten back by anti-racist organisations and campaigns, including at the heart of them the Anti-Nazi League. By the early 1990s, it was clear that the successor organisation to the National Front, the British National Party, were beginning to make serious inroads on local estates. They'd spent a couple of years with the strategy of building up their influence by getting involved in community campaigns. And that culminated in them winning a council seat in Tower Hamlets in East London in September 1993. And that was just a few months after the murder of Stephen Lawrence in South East London. And Stephen's death wasn't the first, or sadly the last, in that part of South East London. So it was clear that you had a significant increase in racist violence alongside, uh, which was fermented by the, the BNP. They had an active presence. They had what they claimed was a bookshop, in, in reality, it was their political headquarters in Welling in south-east London, the area where many of these attacks and some of the murders had taken place. So you had both a significant increase in racist violence and an electoral strategy that seemed to be working for them. So it was in those circumstances that the Anti-Nazi League was re-established. And I was uh, an active... Anti-racist campaign, I was known to people in Manchester and Leeds, where I spent some time, and so I was asked to come and help work at the Anti-Nazi League.
1: That's very interesting. What other uh, major campaigns have you been involved in, or which campaigns have you been involved in in a major way?
0: Well, we had uh, at that time, you know, we had massive campaigns. Again, first of all, to make sure that the the BNP lost. The one council and it see, it may seem like very little now when you consider that over the last 10 years they've had they, they won a number of council seats and for a period of time they had some people in the European Parliament in the leader of the, the British National Party Nick Griffin the then leader he was a member of the European Parliament for a period of time so it may seem now as if them winning one council seat in East London was a small beer but It was a huge thing at the time. And it was a massive campaign to challenge and oppose them. And it was a successful campaign. And amongst the other things that we organized, we revived the idea of the huge carnivals that took place in the 1970s. And the carnivals were fantastically important because music has always been one of the things that brings young people together. Music, obviously, in itself, is something which fuses different styles, different traditions, different cultures, and so has always been fantastically important. And so bringing that mix together in carnivals and quite deliberately taking, as they had done in the 70s and 80s, you would have punk, you would have reggae, and doing exactly the same kind of thing, punk, reggae, rap music bringing all of those things together and getting young people together was hugely important because it it can help to transform people's lives and so we did a lot of that kind of work in the 90s that was hugely important sadly as we're discussing racism clearly hasn't gone away and in some ways has revived massively over the last few years so it's been necessary to recreate you can't just recreate the wheel create new organisations and so currently I'm involved for example in stand up to racism some of the work that we're doing to challenge fascist organizations for one thing but also institutional racism and to support things like black lives matter campaign against islamophobia anti-semitism and a whole range of ways in which racism manifests itself
1: we'll come back to stand up to racism in a second i want to ask first of all when you became a barrister was that a continuation of your activism or was it a break from it
0: it was, it was very much a continuation, uh, I mean interestingly Rina, I'd always, I think when I first went to university, I had toyed with the idea of studying law then, but ultimately, I think really I just wanted to have a good time, so I felt I could, I could get onto a history course um, and I learned from doing that course. But I, do, I, you know, I just wanted to immerse myself in what was a hugely exciting city, which Manchester was. Uh, there's great music, great culture at the time, and still is. But I also learned a lot about myself and grew as a person, so I have no regrets about that. But I think over the decades, really, since then, I always had this kind of nagging thought in my mind about whether or not I could go to the bar. And then what ultimately was the catalyst was having worked at race on the agenda and done work that followed on from the Stephen Lawrence inquiry looking at institutional racism and some of the practical ways in which you could try and challenge it. I got to the stage where I thought the support for those kind of initiatives was running out. And certainly the funding for those kind of initiatives was running out. And I had to think to myself, okay, what's your next step? What's the next thing that you can do? And it was at that stage that I thought, why don't, you know, yeah, why not see if you can go to the bar and play in whatever small way I can, some role in representing people who look like me and challenging some of the discrimination that they face. So I suppose that's, really what's behind my journey to the bar
1: you said a moment ago that the rest is history of course you studied history um at university statues of winston churchill and edward Colston in in bristols have been defaced or demolished recently on black Lives matter uh, protests you've spoken about the need to be critical of statues in the past and and the idea of decolonizing statues, certainly ones which celebrate the history of racism. Some would say that statues are inanimate objects and they question how much impact a statue really can have. And I suppose as well, coming at it from a legal perspective, as a lawyer, there's arguments around the criminal damage to public property as well. Why should we, in your opinion, consider the campaign to remove statues with a racist history?
0: Well, you look at what's happened since those incidents occurred and it is clear that the people who were involved in pulling down the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol or defacing the Churchill statue in Parliament Square in London, they have provoked... A real debate about the role that people who were slaveholders, about the role of people who were colonists, uh, about the 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 actual attitude of people like Churchill—they have provoked that debate. The fact that, for example, Sadiq Khan has been saying that in London, the city that he's the mayor of, that he now wants to have a debate and a discussion about whether it's appropriate that these statues should remain. The fact that Robert Millington was pulled down from his plinth in Canary Wharf, that has shown that the people who uh, have, have been involved in the Statues Must fall movement, the people who pulled down those, those, those uh, statues, have got a very real debate going. And I think the point is, of course, that why do we learn about history? Why is history taught? It's because people want to present a certain view of what happened in the past in order, of course, to influence what we do today and what we do in the future. And so I think it's entirely right that we should be discussing exactly what the role was of Winston Churchill or exactly what the role of Cecil Rhodes, whose statue stands high above Oriel College in Oxford. And there was an incredible demonstration in Oxford about that statue. Um, I think these are really important debates looking further afield. South Africa, and I've had the, the privilege of traveling to South Africa and spending some time with activists over there in the last couple of years, and, and a, a good friend of mine, Rahad Desai, has made a fantastic documentary film called Everything Must Fall that's that looked at the movement to decolonize education in South Africa. And amongst the things that they expose is the fact that, for example, Cape Town University is built on land that was bequeathed by Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes Foundation. Where did his wealth come from in the first place? His wealth came from uh, butchery, from murder and pillage, and destroying the livelihoods, the lives, and the prosperity of black people. And so those people who are campaigning and demanding that the land be given back to them, that they be given reparations, are I think they're absolutely right. And that is precisely that debate and discussion that those people who have argued about the statues have generated and provoked. So it's not simply about inanimate objects. It's a real debate about our history, about the present and about the future and about the kind of world that we want to live in. I mean, sorry to go on, Rena, but it's worth mentioning as well. You think of the United States, and you may recall, I think it was about three years ago now, there was these demonstrations by racists, the racist right, to protect the statues of Confederate generals. And in one of the cases in Charlottesville, there was an Protests by anti racist demonstrators, and one of those, a young white working class woman, Heather Heyer, was mown down and killed by a self professed fascist. Um, again, it's a contesting history. And it's worth noting, of course, that those statues of those generals, Donald Trump, amongst others, of course, was saying, oh, it's a tragedy that our heritage is being destroyed in this way. Our beautiful heritage is being destroyed in this, in this way. That isn't part of a beautiful heritage. And most of those statues were deliberately erected in the decades after the Civil War, and when the Jim Crow system as, of segregation was being established in order to try and present this unified sense of history and, and the contribution of the, the, you know, the great Southern leaders to American history and the American dream.
1: I mean, some people have said that the, we shouldn't be judging historical figures by modern-day standards. Do you think there's a deliberate celebration of violence interacting those
0: statues well i don't think it's it i don't think it's a deliberate celebration of violence in some ways actually it's an attempt to to sanitize and present those people as figures of peace and harmony and people who brought prosperity to the world and it's interesting that like Churchill literally rewrote his own history. Churchill was a, a writer and a historian and, and a journalist, wasn't he? So he wrote his history. And, and actually, Churchill was considered for a long period of time to be a very dangerous person. Uh, something you know, someone whose ideas were considered wild and way out, and who shouldn't be anywhere near the levers of power. I think once he then became the war leader who is celebrated for rescuing Britain from the clutches of the Nazis, it's only latterly that, you know, partly by his own hand, he's been presented as the greatest leader that Britain has ever had. And his memoirs are preserved in the cabinet war rooms and statues are erected to him. But people forget the reputation that he had before. And so... Uh, people in the the, uh, the you know the movement to decolonise they don't say as I think is often crudely said that they just want to whitewash or perhaps we should you know, blackwash history. They say we want to discuss the whole history. Yes, let's discuss robes Let's discuss his entire role as someone who sought to colonise so much of Southern Africa. Let's discuss the whole of Churchill's history. So discuss him taking on the dances in Germany. Let's discuss also the fact that in 1943, this great war leader was responsible for denying food to people in Bengal. And that the consequence of that was millions of people dying in the Bengal famine. So yes, let's have a discussion. Let's discuss these figures. Let's discuss the whole of uh, their legacy, not just the legacy that they would like to present to us.
1: I suppose it reminds me of the History Boys quote, to remember is to forget. And history can be seen as a as a tool of propaganda and so for example I brought up before the way that slavery is taught in in schools and yes of course the human cost is is considered but it is also taught in economic terms and I suppose by looking at their entire contribution it can expose the emphasis that we put on certain historical figures so you know Cecil Rhodes being celebrated as somebody who brought wealth to the empire more generally and his and the suffering that he caused is forgotten and the, and, the, and the sort of social justice arguments um, around that. I want to ask again, though, as a, as a barrister, what's your view on the idea that this is damage to public property? Because surely, as a, as a barrister, you can't condole that kind of damage.
0: Well, obviously, you're quite right. As a barrister, I... I can't encourage people to do things that are going to get them into trouble. But I'm reminded of what Angela Davis, the, one of my heroes, the great black American activist and, and, and academic said. And she was interviewed, it's a brilliant interview on, there's a film called The Black Power Mixtape, which people should watch. And she was interviewed by a journalist and was asked about this question of violence and people fighting back and attacking the police or property and whatever. And her answer was to say, how dare you ask me that question? Obviously, I'm not saying that to you. But what she then went on to say was, compare the everyday violence and oppression that people experience through poverty, through marginalisation, through... Uh, exclusion through being brutalized by the police, by being denied opportunity, and the suffering that they experience systematically on a day-to-day basis, and or you look at imperialist wars and the suffering that is imposed on people in foreign lands, and you're comparing that. You compare that with a few people knocking down statues or trying to drive oppressive police out of their communities you can't make that same equivalence there is no comparison between the two and that i think was an incredibly powerful thing for her to say and i think that that's absolutely right that you know you cannot compare the violence of the oppressed with that of their oppressors.
1: I think that's a really interesting point because we can think as well about the visual impact of media here. And certainly we've seen how the TV cameras show in close detail the acts of violence, um, especially at the protests. And even though on the audio they say, oh, most of the protests here were... Were peaceful, they show up close the violence, and of course, that's what, you know, images are far more powerful and they stay with people, and that's what has a greater impact, I think, which I think plays into people's fears about social breakdown, which the rich and powerful use to coerce them to supporting the system as it is. Yet, as you say, there's violence in the system of capitalism, and TV cameras are not normally there to show pre- police brutality, to show immigration officers tearing down people's doors or the aggression, which is the daily lived experience of poverty. Having said that, of course, social media has had a role to play in in what's happened recently, you know, capturing on tape the murder of, or capturing on a camera phone, the murder of George Floyd, and that's helped shed light on what's traditionally not been broadcast on television. And it's got me thinking recently about the work of the rapper Loki, who's a British rapper with Iraqi heritage, and he asks what is terrorism, and explores in one of his songs, the idea of state terrorism. So the word terrorism is usually associated with individuals who carry out acts of violence against Western democracy. Yet terrorism means ruling by fear, ruling by terror, literally. It means subjugating people to violence to coerce them, and that is exactly the role of the police and the army in society. And as George Floyd was murdered, we have Trump adding anti-fascist organisation, Antifa, to the terrorist list in the US. So you see in plain sight this contradiction between the state using terror to coerce people and also using the label of terrorism to devalue the arguments of their opponents. What do you think about that?
0: Well, I think that's right. No, I I, I couldn't put it any more succinctly or eloquently than you have and as I think Leakey quite rightly quite rightly says and again it's it comes back to this thing about you know some sort of moral equivalence doesn't it and you know it's interesting isn't it that a couple of observations I think it's absolutely right that because of the advent of if you like citizens journalism and ordinary people filming and presenting these things i think that that, that has had an impact and to some extent it has it has forced the mainstream media if you like to add those caveats oh most of the protesting was very very peaceful and that's important that is very important but it, it has meant as well that you know we, we've seen an alternative view being presented and, and, it's, and it has forced, not just in terms of the documentary stuff, but it's forced in terms of drama, the mainstream media to portray a bit more of what goes on on the ground. And so, for example, just a couple of days ago, watched on the BBC, there was a brilliant dramatisation of one of the stories that, that was captured in the Windrush scandal. And of course, you know, what happened with the Windrush scandal, that atrocity was exposed by a combination of some journalists, including Patrick Vernon and, as it happens, the Guardian journalist, Amelia Gentleman, who wrote an incredible series of articles and a book. But it was also, of course, as a result of community campaigning and an uproar of anger on the streets, which, of course, culminated in, The resignation of Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, a a report being written, and the promise—not yet the delivery—of compensation to the windrush generation. But of course, and just to go back as well, Rena, to you know, when you talked about you know the protests, some of the things that are striking is you know they always home in on people taking trainers or. I don't know, iPhones or whatever. But I remember, for example, when Hurricane Katrina happened in America, and I think it was 2005, what people were taking? Nappies, children's clothes. These is people who are incredibly poor, who have nothing. And that's the violence of the system, which drives them into that level of desperation and they're just taking back some of what they should be entitled to in the first place there's a sense of that isn't there
1: absolutely and i'm thinking as well of the examples more close to home as well for example um the 2011 riots but also grenfell and the horrible experience that 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 whole community went through as a result of the building being sanitized for aesthetic purposes um, what do you think about that
0: well absolutely you know that is one of the most visible vivid and horrific examples of exactly how the system operates because you're quite right you know the people who lived there and who had complained about the conditions that they were living in for years and were not just ignored, perhaps even worse, they were considered troublemakers by the local authority and others. And then when the, the tower was engulfed in flames, precisely because, and on one of the richest pieces of real estate in the whole of England, this was a, an eyesore for the posh rich people who lived there and therefore it needed to be covered up in something that made it even more flammable so that it didn't look quite so bad for them to look at it. It is astonishing and an absolute disgrace. And it's a disgrace that the people who live in Grenfell, lived in Grenfell, haven't got justice.
1: Absolutely. i want to talk now about how people can get involved in activism how they might be able to support you and what you do if not personally how can people support the campaigns that you're involved in
0: well stand up to racism is one of the main campaigns that i'm involved in and i think it is one of the fighting racism as we can clearly see is one of the most important things that people can do partly because racism is a is is a scourge that we need to fight against and destroy but i think fighting against racism also creates a kind of solidarity which allows people to question think about and organized against all forms of oppression you know i'm not for just fighting against racism but ignoring sexism homophobia transphobia we need to fight all of those things and i think that you know getting involved in something like stand up to racism because it's about unity we want all of those people involved it could create the the space in which you can have those kinds of of discussions. So certainly, I would encourage people to get involved in stand up to racism and and other uh, community you know and, and groups like that. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's inspiring to see so many people doing that at the moment. What we want is to, when it stops trending on Twitter and so on, people to stay involved and to build upon these kind of positive things. And I suppose as well, more broadly, you see in, for example, the the local action groups that have been set up around COVID-19. It's amazing to see the the really creative solidarity that people have shown, making masks and gowns, distributing food, checking on their neighbours. That's the kind of society that I want to see when... when we come out of lockdown. And so I think that the the message that we have to send out is that we are not going back to business as usual. We've got to continue the organisation that we've seen and we've got to continue the struggle for something radically different.
1: Do you think lockdown's had an effect on everything that's happened this year? And I ask this because I feel that there's been, some people have called it an awakening, Um, other people are frustrated by the word awakening because of course it's been happening for a long time but there's been an increased consciousness shall we say more generally about these issues and there's also been an increased sense of community among people. I think that both of those things have come out of the lockdown. They've come out of people first of all having more time to to read and to research. Um, Not everyone's been lucky there's been a lot of people who of course haven't had more time there's been a lot of people whose wages are now under pressure and whose uh, living standards are under pressure because of the pandemic it's possibly sharpened their view of of society as being unequal
0: well of, of course we can't underestimate the negative and damaging impact that it's had on people in so many ways people's mental health I think there will be no doubt that there will have been an increase in, for example, domestic violence because people are simply unable to escape from the confines of the living spaces that they're in. And so, you know, children not being able to go to school, and we know that that will have a disproportionately detrimental effect on black children and upon working class kids so we can't underestimate them and of course that if you like the headline thing the number of people who have suffered become critically ill and have died so it's incredibly negative effects and people will be incredibly worried about their future prospects if they're losing their jobs and so on but you're right that the flip side of that is that we've all had an opportunity to reflect upon and to think about who matters and what matters in life and in society. And so, for example, in the the series of weekly claps for carers that we had, will have had an incredible effect in terms of cementing solidarity. And people, clear the fact that it, 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 first people thought about the National Health Service and thought about who makes up the National Health Service, the biggest employer in the country, over a million staff, and a hugely disproportionate number of whom are nurses, doctors, support staff and so on from all around the world, as has always been the case. People have thought about that. People are thinking about who runs the transport networks, who cleans our streets and a a real sense that the key workers are not the bosses and the bankers, but the ordinary people. That has been hugely important and has made people think Um, the environment, people are thinking about the environment. And so I I think that, and you're right as well, people have not just seen these things on their screens and out on their streets, but will have had more time to read and to think about and educate themselves about those things. So those things are very positive. Of course, some of that was happening before the lockdown. You'll remember that last year there was a massive wave of demonstrations around The climate change, people like Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion. So I think some of that stuff we had been seeing happening already. I think, I hope at least that there's been an acceleration of it during the period of of pandemic.
1: Many people are looking out for resources that they can use to educate themselves around the issues that we've discussed today. Do you have anything you can recommend, something people can watch or listen to? to further explore the discussion?
0: Well, the thing to watch is, we've already mentioned it, I think, the Ava DuVernay documentary, 13th, you should definitely watch. And if, if I'm right, and if you look up the film anyway, the, the other one will come up. I think it's called When They See Us, is the dramatization about the, what happened to the, the boys who were arrested in Central Park. Reading. I would always recommend the autobiography of Malcolm X and it's an incredible story of how someone transformed himself but having read that Malcolm never got to read the autobiography he narrated it to Alex Haley but was assassinated before it actually came out so he never read it never had an opportunity to correct what he may have thought was wrong. So I would also highly recommend the book by Manning Marable called, I think it's called Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, which with the benefit of 20, 30 years longer after Malcolm's death to reflect upon him, Manning Marable kind of updated the story. Definitely read that. Angela Davis, Women, Race and Class is a fantastic book. And also for me, one of the great books is C.L.R. James' The Black Jacobins. So definitely read those and watch those things. I'm a great lover of music. And so there's loads of things to listen to. I think last week was apparently the 50th anniversary of when Marvin Gaye started to record his greatest album, What's Going On? which was a real examination of American society in the 60s and early 70s, so definitely that. Aretha Franklin, another one of my heroes, so definitely the stuff that Aretha uh, wrote and recorded. I I love Public Enemy and I love um, some uh, hip hop and rap music, so certainly Public Enemy, Fight the Power, Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, Bob Marley. Um, I love Bob Marley, incredibly important for the, uh, the Caribbean community in particular in the 1970s. And so, you know, I've, I've actually written about Bob Marley. And so almost any of his albums, Catch a Fire, Burn In, Exodus, uh, Uprising, great albums. And I love jazz as well. And the greatest jazz album is Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. So there are a few things to keep people going.
1: Thank you. Um, You've also written a book yourself, or rather edited a book, um, with other anti-racist activists called Say It Loud. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. We wrote that back in 2012, I think it was. And there were... I suppose the biggest motivation was this. For those who are interested and were already engaged, there was often quite a lot that you could find and that you could read about black American history, about Martin Luther King, about Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement. And that is incredibly important stuff. We should read that history. I read that history and I'm always looking for new angles on that history. But we were conscious of the fact that there is a black British story to tell, a story about pioneers in this country, people who were involved in the Chartist movement, for example, Uh, people who were involved in the fight against slavery, who weren't just William Wilberforce, that there were people who pioneered... Bus boycotts in this country, a Bristol bus boycott in this country. People like Claudia Jones, who pioneered the the Notting Hill Carnival. Olive Morris, you know, fantastic young anti-racist activist about whom one of the council buildings here in Brixton is named. People like Jayabin Desai, who led the Asian women in the Grunwick's dispute, uh, a very important strike in the, the mid-1970s and the struggles of the Anti-Nazi League, Rock Against Racism, the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, and so on. And we wanted to tell that story to illuminate that history and make that history available to people here as well, so that, for example, when you have Black History Month celebrations, and that's something that is quite controversial these days, you're not just talking about Martin and Rosa, but you're talking about Jayabin, about Claudia, about Stephen Lawrence. That was the real motivating factor behind that book.
1: Yeah, it's a very good book, and I think it's a very good introduction to anyone who hasn't really read anything about racism in a while. And it also, of course, presents um, a Marxist analysis and brings in the the issue of class and the issue of, of racial unity as well. Finally, this has been... A privilege and a pleasure to sit down with you i just want to ask if you have any final thoughts for anyone who's looking to get involved in anti-racist campaigning
0: well it's been a pleasure to sit down and discuss this with you and thanks for giving me the opportunity rena oh and just one thing i have to say i was talking about music you have to watch if you haven't and listen to jimi hendrix's performance of the star-spangled banner at Woodstock, which is absolutely amazing. I would say that, you know, people who are listening into this podcast are listening in because they're interested in people trying to make change. That's what your podcast is about. So they've already taken at least a first step of trying to get themselves informed. I would say having taken those first steps, get involved and stay involved and be part of the change that you want to see.
1: Thank you. I think that's a wonderful place to end. Thanks very much for your time.
0: Thank you. Future
1: Heist is recorded and produced by me, Weena Neve-Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck and sound editing by Gibran Farah. Ben Weaver-Hinks is our podcast consultant and Charlotte Watts, our social media editor. You can find original illustrations for Future Heist by Charlotte on social media. Follow us at future underscore heist on Instagram and Twitter or Future Heist podcast on Facebook and YouTube. You can find a transcript for this episode on renathejournalist.com forward slash podcast. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi, and if you like this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.